Hey Moth family, save the date for the Moth main stage on Saturday, February 27th at 7.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Join us and host Jonathan Ames for an evening of stories as five storytellers take the virtual stage and share a true personal tale from their life. Stories of glory and defeat, taunting fate, laughing in the face of danger, and the moments that forever changed the course. Buy tickets now at themoth.org slash virtual mainstage. From PRX, this is the Moth Radio Hour. I'm Meg Bowles, and in this hour, we'll have three stories that will take us from an uptown neighborhood in Chicago to the Navajo Nation, and then across the ocean to behind the scenes of the Tour de France. Our first story comes from Shannon Kaysen. He told it at the historic Zaitarian Theater in New Bedford, Massachusetts. Here's Shannon Kaysen, live at the Moth. We were coming down the stairs when they were coming in. A new family had moved into the three-flat building we lived in in Chicago. They were moving into the basement apartment, which is really small for a family. I stopped, talked to the husband, my wife talked to the wife, and our two-year-old daughters introduced themselves on the porch. They had a two-year-old and we had a two-year-old. Me and the father, Smile looking at our little girls. Kids introduce themselves by what they have, like this is my doll, or this is my bear. The father said that they were moving from the shelter down the street and happy to have a place to call home. I told him, I know how it is, man. If you need anything, just give a knock upstairs, anything. We left and they went inside. The very next day, I get a knock at the door. It's the father, he's asking for money for a train fare to go downtown. I told him, it's no problem. I'm headed downtown myself to go to work. We can just walk together, I'll swipe you through. We walk down the sidewalk and it's a long line of three flat buildings like ours and across the street is this big apartment building. The uptown neighborhood in Chicago Super diverse as Asians, Africans, Europeans, Americans, all of us. You can get Starbucks coffee from one building, a, a fifth of Henny from the next building. Uh, it's Mexican food, Thai food, Ethiopian food, or some flaming hot Cheetos all on your way to the train. The side we're walking on has this big shelter. With a, with a big church with a shelter in the basement, and then it's the corner store. And there's guys who hang outside at the corner. There's been some shootings at the corner. I ignore the guys on the corner. They sell drugs on the corner. It's, it's, it's gangs in Chicago, if you hadn't heard. I don't know. <laughs> I'm from Detroit, so I'm not clueless. I know, like, if you're not from a certain area, it's best just to keep your eyes open but go unseen. They ignore me. I ain't got nothing to do with what they're doing. It's none of my business. I was a little concerned that my new neighbor knew all the guys on the corner really well, <laughs> but we talked on the train, laughed. He was a cool guy. His name was Jesse. So one night, I get a knock at the door. It's after midnight. My wife works late. She wasn't home. It was the mother from downstairs. She was asking to borrow $20 for some baby diapers. First off, it's after midnight, the baby should be sleeping, the store is closed. The other thing, I guess she forgot that we have a two-year-old too, so when I gave her a few baby diapers to make it through the night, she looked disappointed, <laughs> which made me suspicious. Another night, I get another knock at the door after midnight, and my wife went home. It was the mother, and she had her daughter in her arms, and she just passes her daughter over to me, and she says it's an emergency. She's in a frantic and says, if you could just watch her for the night. And I got her daughter in my arms, and she didn't wait for an answer. She just leaves. 
I go to the window and I can see the mother get in the car with this guy who wasn't Jesse and drive off. I knew it was drugs. Be real with you, I knew it was crack, meth, something, nothing. You ain't that hyper that early in the morning or late at night unless it's drugs or the pursuit of some drugs. The thing is, like I have a heart towards people with addictions. I got some of my own, it's not drugs, but I'm not a stranger to community rec rooms and church basements myself. In the morning, my wife Cindy, she makes breakfast for everybody and the girls, they play in the living room. And my daughter Zoe, she brought every toy she ever got into the living room, you know. Kids are like show-offs, you know. I tell her, Zoe, which toy are you gonna let Ashley have? And Zoe give me that look like, what? <laughs> but Zoe is generous. She give her this doll better than I expected. It's this little doll with a bonnet and pigtails coming out of the bonnet. My wife, Cindy, she calls Ashley's mom and tell her that we'll just keep the girls another night because they're just having, the girls are having fun. And uh, that evening, they share the bed and I tuck them into the door of the Explorer covers. So one night I'm coming home from work from the train and I pass by the corner store and the corners are empty. It's kind of nice, like a regular neighborhood. I passed by the big church with the shelter in the basement, the big apartment building across the street. I get to my place, and all the guys who would normally be at the corner are sitting on my porch smoking with Jesse. I just stood there for a second. I can't ignore it now. And I ain't got nothing against a little puff puff pass, but not on my porch. The thing is, it's like, I grew up Worse neighborhoods than this uptown Chicago neighborhood. This is nice, this is great. I, honestly, I worked my ass off to get to this point in life. I'd be damned my family grew up around the same drugs and violence that I saw growing up. This at a distance at the corner, but not on my porch. But I don't say anything, I just go inside. They had been smoking in the basement apartment and it was seeping up into our place and my wife, she isn't as uh, passive as me. She went straight downstairs, banged on the door like the police. Said, y'all gotta stop smoking down here. My daughter in the house coughing. They just went outside to the porch. I went downstairs to talk to Jesse. I'm like, what's up, man? He just shook his head. I'm like, how many people you got living down here now? He said it was just them but the guys from the corner would come in and out, but they hard to get rid of, they like roaches. I told him, man, y'all gonna have a tough time there because my wife hates roaches. <laughs> Cindy has saw some guys from the corner selling drugs in front of our house, and she yelled out the window to him, if I see it again, I'ma call the police. She told me when I got home from work, I'm like, baby, you can't just go yelling out the window to a bunch of drug dealers and gang members that you go call the police. If they get caught, who they go point at? You smarter than that, baby. She was just frustrated. Cindy saw some guys selling drugs again, and she told me she was gonna call the police. I stopped her. You don't call the police. I grew up in Detroit in the 80s, crack era. I got this programming in my mind, you don't call the police. First, it's a distrust of the police actually doing something to help the situation. Another thing is like retaliation from the people that you're telling on. Snitches get stitches. But then I thought about that little girl and all the men coming out of that small basement apartment and the dazed look on her face when I see her, or how when she stayed with us, she didn't want to go home. I got to confront this stupid way of thinking. I just can't ignore it. So another night, I get a knock at the door. After midnight, I'm frustrated now. It's the mother or father from downstairs. I open the door, and it's the police. They tell me to go back inside, lock the door. I could see them all in the little foyer in their vest and gear, and one of the 
officers has a battering ram, I go back inside. I can hear him bust down the door, boom. I can hear wrestling and scuffling and down below. I hear the police yelling and cussing. I go in to check on my daughter because my wife wasn't home and she was still asleep. She didn't even know anything was happening. But I can hear the guys from the corner downstairs screaming at the police and then it just goes silent. I go to the window and I can see the police carting all the guys from the corner out to a wagon. And then I see the family, Jesse, his wife, and Ashley. One of the officers is carrying Ashley and she's in her pink pajamas against his dark blues and black. And she has that little doll that Zoe gave her with the bonnet and the pigtails. And I wanna go out and tell the officer that we could just keep Ashley until all this is taken care of, but I don't wanna go out and the officer think I'm with everybody else. We all look the same to the police. I go out and now I'm arresting and my daughter is in some officer's arms. It's best for me just to stay where I am. None of my business. For the next few days, the corners empty. No smoke in our apartment, no people sitting on our porch. Then about a week after that, same guys on the corner. They don't say anything to me. I ignore them, they ignore me. We live in two different worlds. At least we, it sounds good, but I don't know if that's true. I get to my place and I can hear the landlord downstairs. So I go down there and see if he go discount my rent for all this stuff we've been putting up with. And I'm shocked to see the landlord with the family, Jesse, his wife, and Ashley. Me and Jesse talk on the porch while our daughters play. And Jesse say, you didn't have to call the police, man. And I tell him I didn't. And I didn't. I don't call the police. I can't be a part of putting more black men in prison, as stupid as that may sound or something, but I don't call the police. But I told him I should have did something, man, because you need help. He nodded. He said they had to move. They hadn't paid rent for like a year. I asked him what he was going to do. He didn't know. He asked if we can keep Ashley just till he got himself together. I wanted to say, yeah, but... We can't just take their little girl. I mean, we struggling to make it ourselves. It don't work like that. We looked at our little girls playing on the porch. And I looked them in the eyes. And I said, man, whatever it takes, take care of that little girl. Whatever it takes. I gave him my number. I said, if you need anything, Give me a call. Anything. Thank you. Shannon Kaysen has never heard from Jesse again, but he says even though addiction can be a powerful and debilitating thing, he wants to believe that in Jesse's case, addiction didn't win. He could see in his eyes how much he loved his daughter. You can hear more of Shannon's stories by checking out his podcast, Shannon Kaysen's Homemade Stories, that he produces with WBEZ in Chicago. Coming up, artist Melanie Yazzie shares stories from a childhood spent on the Navajo Nation when the Moth Radio Hour continues. Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by PRX. This is the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Meg Bowles. The Moth produces main stage events across the country, and we make a point of inviting people from the local communities to take the stage and share their stories. I met our next storyteller, Melanie Yazzie, when I was directing a main stage in Boulder, Colorado. 
And when Melanie took the stage that night, she was adorned in all this incredible turquoise and silver jewelry. And she had a beautiful, quiet energy that completely transfixed the audience. You could literally hear a pin drop. Here's Melanie Yazzie, live at the mall. When I was little, um, I grew up on the Navajo reservation. And my parents were educators. They taught um, Head Start, and because they both were working, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents. They lived in a very rural area, and these were my mom's parents. We would be out in the middle of nowhere. They were dirt roads, and this was a time period um, when some people had cars, but a lot of people still had wagons and horses, and that's how they got around. I remember waking up early in the morning and hearing my grandfather pumping the kerosene lamps to get them started, because there was no electricity. And I would smell bacon and eggs, and my grandmother would be making um, tortillas and potatoes for us to eat. My grandfather would be getting ready to go take the sheep out. And I remember just thinking this was a really beautiful time and we would have breakfast together. This cold air would come in in the morning and we would be just being with each other. My grandfather would go out to the corral and I would then help my, my grandmother um, mix milk for the lambs, and we would mix up this milk and put them in these large um, containers of Coke and 7-Up and, and put the nipples on and go out to the corral and feed the lambs. And I also remember part of my job was to siphon out the water because um, we didn't have uh, running water, and I would take that hose and siphon out water for the dogs. And our dog dish was a tire that my grandfather cut in half. And we'd put the food in there. And all the dogs would come running. And they always had really weird names. Um, I was um, trying to remember some of the names, like Mop Bucket and <laughs> um, Daisy Boots. What's your name? <laughs> Those were really their names. It was really strange, but they'd all come and eat out of this, this trough. And after that, then we would go inside. And in the one room where we all slept, um, there was a bed where my uh, grandma and grandpa slept. It's like a, a queen bed, and they would we would fix that. And then my uncle's one of my uncle's beds was off the side. It was a, a twin bed and all of us, the rest of us slept on mattresses and cushions on the floor. So we would get all those cushions together and fold them up and put them against the wall to, to get the space cleaned up. And this room that we slept in all together was then transformed into my grandmother's studio. She is a traditional Navajo weaver and we would get that space ready. There were two windows on either side of the room, and the light would be coming in in the morning. And in between the two windows was her loom. And I remember we used to sew these flower sacks together to make these like white sheets that would go over the loom and the rug to keep it clean. And then we would lay out the cushions in front of the loom for my grandmother. and a sheepskin for me um, to sit with her because my job was to be with her and be her companion and help her. And she would be carding wool or spinning. And there were times when um, she would make the yarn into these balls. And part of my job was to stand there with my hands out and she would wrap the yarn around my hands and you know, I'd get tired as a kid and I would just bend over and lay on my back 
and transfer the yarn over to my feet. <laughs> I'd be laying on my back and I'd be like touching her skirt and just smelling my grandmother. And like often people would ask me like, what reminds you of your grandmother? And I'd said, you know, it's Ben Gay. <laughs> I'd smell that because she's always saying she ached and she would wear that. And I just like, every time I would smell it, I would think of her. and. So I'd be with her and she would be talking with me and as my feet were in the air, she would pet my feet and say beautiful things to me and just encourage me to be a good person. One day we were driving to um, off the reservation and it's like an hour to get to a town um, from home and we get there and I remember being really little and all the adults were talking in the car dealership and I looked over and they were unraveling and rolling out this rug across the hood of the truck. And my grandmother was there talking with the car dealer man and you know, they were going on and I was just, you know, you're supposed to be good and sit there. So we were later driving back home in a brand new truck and I remember my grandpa leaving, leaning towards me and saying, see how important her weaving is? She supported us in many ways and it was really beautiful. As I started to get older, I started getting into art making and I loved making art and I started making prints in high school, got into printmaking and in undergraduate school and this question would always come up from people, because they'd say, you're an artist, and I'd say yes, and they'd say, you're Navajo, and I'd say yes. They'd say, so you must be a traditional Navajo weaver, and I'd say, no. You must make jewelry. No. <laughs> and they'd look at what I'd make, and just sometimes people would be disappointed that I wasn't carrying on this tradition, and so, at one point, I asked my grandmother, what do you think of what I'm doing and what I'm making? Sometimes I think I should be weaving like you. And my grandmother said, I didn't grow up going to school or learning um, English, and she's speaking in Navajo, and she says, but the way I see it, you're weaving thoughts and ideas and these designs in a different way, something like I can't do. And in that way, I see you as a traditional weaver. It's really amazing to hear that from my grandmother and gave me strength to move forward with, with what I do. I move forward in my life making art and thinking about and remembering what this strength she gave me. As I moved forward in my life, I kept going through this, this questioning and I was teaching at different universities and I ended up coming to this university here in Boulder. And I remember there was always this question of, should I be here? I really should be back home. My parents are educators. They've given up everything to be there. Should I be there too? And this weight of like, where should I be? What should I be doing? Was always inside me. My grandmother's had since passed and um, I was asked to help with a project at the university at the Natural History Museum. It turns out our Natural History Museum on campus has one of the largest Navajo rug collections in the US. And I helped with this project. And all the time I was looking in the database for Thelma Baldwin, looking for her rugs and nothing would come up. So the exhibit comes and I call my parents and my uncle and tell them, you should come to Boulder and see this exhibit that I helped put together. It's really beautiful and there's some rugs from where our people are from and 
and you should come see them. So my parents came and I was really excited and we were coming into this room with all of these rugs on the walls and on platforms and my mom got really quiet and I said, I started to point but before I even showed her, she said, that's my mom's rug, that's your grandmother's rug. I stop, I look at it. I said, Mom, how do you know? And she says, because I was carrying you, I was pregnant with you when she was weaving that rug. We walk up to the rug and look at the label. And the label says, Mrs. Tom Baldwin. Because during that time, women were known by their husband's names. And all my life, I was told to be a strong Navajo woman and always keeping my name. And it was amazing to find her rugs there. And then my uncle found some other rugs that belonged to her. And then off to the side, I see my dad like getting a little emotional. And I said, Dad, are you OK? What's wrong? And he said, this is my mom's rug. And we're we were just like amazed because my, my dad's mom didn't weave a lot of rugs. We look at the label by her rug and it says anonymous. We call the people at the museum and tell them the story. And they're saying, we're so glad that you could share this. And then I tell myself, this is where I'm supposed to be. They're here and I'm here. Thank you. That was Melanie Yazzie. Melanie is a printmaker, painter, and sculptor, and teaches at the University of Colorado Boulder. In my work with the moth, I have the privilege of meeting and working with some fascinating people, and you really do become bonded with them when you listen to their stories. While I was in Boulder, Melanie invited me to her house, where we sat at her dining room table working on her story. And before I left, she gave me this beautiful Navajo necklace made of stones, turquoise, agate, white marble, and they're carved into animals called fetishes. And she believes they serve as protectors to keep one company while they travel through life. And she told me how much the experience of working on her story had meant to her. And then she looked me in the eye and she told me that by helping people share their stories, that made me a story guide. And she gave me this gift so that I would have these beautiful animals to care for me and to protect me while doing this important work. I'm not going to lie, I got a little choked up. I literally had a huge lump in my throat. You know, on the surface, the moth is entertainment. It's storytelling. But many of the people we work with are not entertainers. They're just regular people like you and me. And it's a big deal for them to get on a stage and share their story in front of a sold-out audience. It takes a lot of guts. And that necklace is now kind of a reminder of that. I travel around with it, and it's become a bit of a good luck charm with every main stage I direct. In fact, as I record this, I'm on the road, and it's in my suitcase. Coming up, an insider story on one of the greatest sports scandals of our time when the Moth Radio Hour continues. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by PRX. This is the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Meg Bowles, and our last story comes from author and journalist David Walsh. He told this story at a show we produced in London at the beautiful Union Chapel. The theme of the night was Leap of Faith. I first encountered Lance Armstrong at the Tour de France. He was then a 21-year-old, riding the race for the first time. I was a 38-year-old sports writer, writing his first book on the tour. I had this idea that my book would be like a sporting Canterbury Tales. I know, grandiose. I'd always been a dreamer. I was going to interview 13, 14 people on this 
three-week pilgrimage to Paris. They would tell me their stories. I would write their stories, and in that way, I would tell the story of the Tour de France. I met Lance at the Chateau de la, de la Commanderie, a beautiful hotel 10 miles south of Grenoble, where he and his teammates were staying. We sat down and we spoke for three hours. I liked him, and I think he liked me. I was sure that as a young 21-year-old from Texas, he had to be overawed by this enormous sporting epic on the old continent. He said, nah, wasn't like that for him. I said, but come on, you know, you, you're here to learn, right? And he said, no, I'm here to win. Of course, he knew that he couldn't win the race, you know, the, the overall victory, but he felt he could win one leg of it. I thought that was stretching it. Four days later, he did win a leg of that year's Tour de France. He laid it out for me, who he was. He said he had this desire. It almost felt like a rage. And when he got to the end of the race, he would, he would shake like mad. He'd feel his heartbeat go up to 200 beats a minute. And at that moment, he said he often thought about his mother, Linda, who'd had him when she was age 17, who'd raised him more or less as a single parent. And he felt she didn't raise a quitter. And no matter what happened, he wasn't going to quit. And he looked at me, Lance did, and he said, that's not physical. This isn't good legs or lungs. He said, man, this is heart. It's soul. It's just pure guts. And I listened to him, and I thought, wow, 21 years of age. We're going to hear about this guy. Two years later, I was coming home from a trip, because sports writers, we travel a lot. One month, you're at the Tour de France. The next month, it might be the Olympics. The next month, it might be something else. This time, I was coming home from the Rugby World Cup. I'd been in South Africa, South Africa for four weeks. Got to the airport in Dublin, was driving home. As I turned into our house, I looked into our front garden and saw lots of our neighbours. I saw some of the school teachers that our kids had. We had six kids. And I saw the parish priest. And I just knew that something terrible had happened. I knew that once I opened the door of the car and spoke to somebody, my life would change forever. I opened the door and someone, I don't remember who, told me that John, our 12-year-old son, our oldest boy, had been killed off his bicycle coming from a Gaelic football match an hour before. You can imagine how shattering, devastating, horrible that was. For all of us, life would go on, but it would be a lesser life without John. We sat down as a family and we thought, how do we try to deal with this? And I was of the view that we would talk about John as much as we could. We would keep his memory fresh. We would try as best we could not, not to have the subject a hidden, forbidden subject. And I went and spoke to people who had known John, you know, friends, parents of, of his friends, his rugby coach, his Gaelic football coach, his teachers. One story stood out. One of John's teachers at Kindergarten National School in the Midlands of Ireland said to me that she remembered John for something that happened when John was six or seven, and she was reading the story of the Nativity. You know, Mary and Joseph had come to Bethlehem and sought a place in the inn, but all the inns were full and they ended up in a stable, and it was there that baby Jesus was born. And the shepherds came 
And then the three wise men came and they brought gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. And then Mary and Joseph went, went back to where they came from and they lived a very modest life because Joseph was just a humble carpenter and they didn't have very much. And John's hand went up. And Mrs. Toomey, his teacher, said, yes, John. And he said, Mrs. Miss, you say that Mary and Joseph didn't have very much. What did they do with the gold that the three wise men brought? <laughs> and she said, John, I've been reading this story for 33 years. <laughs> and nobody has ever asked me that question. And the honest answer is, I don't know. <laughs> and I said, Mrs. Toomey, that's the most beautiful story. Because for me, it's the most pertinent question. In that journalism, which is my profession, that's it, in a nutshell. What did Mary and Joseph do with the gold? You ask the obvious question. <laughs> People may laugh at you, People may think you're an idiot, but that doesn't deter you. If you're unsure, you ask. And I thought, going on in my journalistic career, I was going to take that with me. I met Lance Armstrong again at the 99 Tour de France. This was six years after that first interview in Grenoble. We had both changed since that first meeting. I was now a more inquiring journalist, a little bit harder in my approach, maybe a guy less inclined to believe in fairy tales. Lance too had changed. He'd been diagnosed with testicular cancer, stage three, the ultimate form. Doctor said he had a 50% chance of surviving. But he, he came through it, changed. What, he, what, he, what had happened was that he he'd come close to losing his life. And coming back, he decided he wasn't going to get so close to losing again. That tour was a, a famous, maybe now infamous tour, because Lance had ridden this race four times. He'd never been a Tour de France rider. His best placing was 36th. He didn't like the big mountains, he couldn't do the time trials, the stuff you have to do to win the Tour de France. Then he gets cancer, life-threatening, he spends two years out of the sport, he comes back and he's the dominant rider in the race. He wins everything. Everybody applauds. Because this is the most life-affirming story you've ever heard. Guy back from cancer, winning the Tour de France. And I sat stood at the side of the road and I felt emotionally flat. This was a story I just didn't believe. How could it be that a man is transformed into a super champion by a two-year illness? People said, but after all he's been through, he would never go and take drugs, would he? And I thought, if he's come back to make sure that he achieves what he wanted to achieve, it might very well be the thing he would do. So I watched and watched him very skeptically. Everything I saw convinced me that he was using performance-enhancing drugs, which were pretty widespread in the sport. I remember on the day he won his first Tour de France, I wrote my first seriously questioning piece in the, Tour de, in the Sunday Times. There was a sentence that said, there are times in life when it's right to applaud a champion. There are other occasions when you'd be better advised to keep your arms by your sides. This is an occasion for keeping our arms by our sides. Because what we need here is not acclamation of the new champion, but an inquiry. That story um, got the most vitriolic, negative reaction to any story I've ever done in 38 years of journalism. Every reader who wrote or emailed disapproved of what I'd written. 
Keith Miller from Glasgow wrote me a letter that said, Mr. Walsh, you have the worst cancer of all, cancer of the spirit. That one got, got past my exterior walls. I had a problem now in that basically I had said Lance Armstrong was a fraud. Innuendo, you could say, no real proof. I had to find some proof. I went looking for witnesses to Lance's doping who would become my sources. I spent two years on the trail and I ended up with three people. Stephen Swart from New Zealand, Emma O'Reilly from Dublin, and Betsy Andreo from Michigan in the US. All of them had been on the inside at one time. Swart, a former teammate, Emma O'Reilly, a former worker in Lance's team, Betsy Andreo, wife of Lance's former best friend. They all told me he doped. They gave me evidence. They'd witnessed it. They'd got drugs for him. They'd heard it. Betsy Andreo turned out to be the most interesting of all. She and her husband had been great friends of Lance. They'd visited him during his cancer treatment in Indiana University Hospital. While they stood in a room, they heard Lance tell his doctor that yes, he had used performance-enhancing drugs. Betsy knew what she heard. I wrote the story and thought what I'd written would be substantial proof and that, and that it would end for Lance. It didn't work out like that through those early years. Lance said at one time, looked at me at a press conference and said, Mr. Walsh, extraordinary accusations must be followed up by extraordinary proof. And you haven't come up with extraordinary proof. I kind of wondered, why was ordinary proof not enough? <laughs> but I knew Lance was an icon to the cancer community. He was a demigod in the sports world. Different rules applied to him. There were sponsors, there were race organizers, there were the sports authorities, there were television broadcasters, there were journalists, and pretty much all of them were looking the other way. This was a story, a life-affirming story, so good that nobody wanted to consider it might be a fraud, even if the evidence was obvious. I became easily the most unpopular journalist at the Tour de France. I drew comfort from an old line of Mar Marge Simpsons Yes. She once said, there's no shame in being the pariah. <laughs> and honestly, I didn't, I didn't feel ashamed. Betsy Andreo became my, my, my sports editor from hell, really. She would ring me and she'd say, did you see that story in the Seattle Times? And I'd say, what story, Betsy? She'd say, the one about Lance. And I'd say, no. She said, read it and follow it up. We would, we would speak on the phone lots and lots of times. And she was always there, like my inspiration. I never wanted it to be personal. I mean, I understood why Lance Armstrong doped. He felt... It was, only, it was his only way to win. And he wasn't prepared to walk away and he wasn't prepared to lose. I got that. I still felt it was wrong. And that I had every right to question him. And I never wanted it to be personal. He nicknamed me the little fucking troll. <laughs> and, and it became really popular with all the journalists to refer to me as that. Um, he called Betsy the crazy bitch. And Betsy and I, used, we used to laugh about this. And when I emailed her, I'd say, hi, crazy bitch, how are you today? And she'd say, I'm good, little fucking troll, how are you? <laughs> Only once did Lance get under my skin. 
I was in a bookstore, and I was leafing through the latest Lance book, Armstrong's War by Daniel Coyle. You know, you go to the index, look for your name, see the pages, and I start reading this section where Lance Armstrong is discussing in very derogatory terms my relationship with our son John who was killed. He had heard that I had described John as a favorite son. And he said, how can he describe him as a favorite son? That's sick. And he said other things. I knew Daniel Coyle and I got out of that shop and I called Daniel. And I said, how could you have written that in the book? And he said, if you're, if you're, if you're that upset, I said, I am this upset. He said, I, I shouldn't have written it. And he said, all I can say to you is that Lance said a lot of things about your relationship with John. And I, I didn't put in the worst. And that didn't make me feel a lot better. Um, I went away and time passed and I thought you know what I'm glad Daniel Coyle put that piece in his book because it's there now between two covers and what it does is that it shines a pretty bright light on the darker side of Lance Armstrong in the end the feds got involved well the feds in the US they're not like journalists they deal in things like subpoenas and affidavits. And you can't sue them. <laughs> and the feds say to you, if you lie to us, it's perjury. And if you commit perjury, we'll make sure you go to prison. That's why Marion Jones ended up in prison. She perjured herself with us guys. They had 26 witnesses all of whom said Lance Armstrong was a cheat. 11 of them were former teammates. Lance Armstrong had said, you must have extraordinary proof if you're gonna bring me down. This was extraordinary proof. It all ended for Lance officially on October 22nd, 2012. I was driving on the M25 around London I knew there was a press conference in Switzerland and I decided that I, I had to hear it. And I called into a Starbucks cafe in one of the services off the M25, plugged my computer into the internet, got the press conference. Lance was stripped of his seven titles, given a lifetime ban from cycling. And they were saying he deserved to be forgotten. I felt strangely flat anticlimactic almost. And I rang Betsy Andreo, and I said, Betsy, how are you feeling? You've, you've seen the press conference. Yeah, I have, she said. She said, I just feel anticlimactic about it now. And maybe what we both didn't realize at that time was that the hunt in life is always better than the kill. I said to Betsy, you know, today is John's birthday, October 22nd. He would have been 30 today. And Betsy said, she said, maybe this is his little birthday gift to you on his birthday. And I thought, Betsy, that's a nice thought. Afterwards, in the days and weeks and years that followed, people said, you must feel vindicated about the way this turned out. And I said, no, I don't feel any sense of vindication. Because I'd known from the very first that I was on the side of truth, and even in the darkest moments, that was enough. Thank you very much. David Walsh is chief sports writer with the Sunday Times in the UK. In 2012, he was judged Journalist of the Year in the UK for his 13-year campaign to show that Lance Armstrong was not a true champion, but an athlete who cheated. Walsh wrote three books about Armstrong, including the bestseller, Seven Deadly Sins. After David wrote the first article accusing Lance Armstrong of using performance-enhancing drugs, Armstrong sued the Sunday Times to the tune of one million pounds, 
seeking damages from David and Alan English, who was then the deputy sports editor. The Sunday Times was forced to pay Armstrong 300,000 pounds. But after his confession, the paper launched a high court bid to have that money paid back in full, plus expenses. They ultimately reached a confidential settlement. That's it for this episode. We hope you'll join us again next time for the Moth Radio Hour. Your host this hour was Meg Bowles. Meg also directed the stories in the show. The rest of the Moss directorial staff includes Catherine Burns, Sarah Haberman, Sarah Austin Jeunesse, and Jennifer Hickson. Production support from Mooj Zaidi. Moth stories are true, as remembered and affirmed by the storytellers. Moth events are recorded by Argo Studios in New York City, supervised by Paul Ruest. Our theme music is by The Drift. Other music in this hour from Julian Lodge and Stellwagen Symphonette. You can find links to all the music we use at our website. The Moth is produced for radio by me, Jay Allison, with Vicki Merrick at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. This hour was produced with funds from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. The Moth Radio Hour is presented by PRX. For more about our podcast, for information on pitching your own story and everything else, go to our website, themoth.org. Moth Story Slams are back. Held on Mondays beginning in February, join us for our weekly Open Mic Story Slam competition. February's theme is Love Hurts. Throw your name in the hat for a chance to tell your story or just come to listen to stories of a total eclipse of the heart, kicked to the curb by the people or places or things you love or used to love. Visit themoth.org slash events to buy tickets now. That's themoth.org slash events.